We're in 2 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we saw last week where the Apostle Paul says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the all-surpassing power comes from God and not from ourselves. And then he says, we're hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not despairing. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We're struck down, but not destroyed. Because we always carry about in our body the death of Jesus Christ so that his life can flow from us into other people. And then he says in chapter 4, verse 16, so we do not lose heart. And really, Paul had many reasons to lose heart. He had many reasons to despair. For example, in chapter 10, verse 10, some people had come to town there at Corinth and were saying some disparaging things about Paul, and this is part of their mantra. They say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech is of no account. Strong statements, but he wasn't, he wasn't discouraged. He kept plowing. And then chapter 12 tells us that, that Paul had revelations. I think Paul had revelations from God, and he says this in chapter 12, verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to harass me and to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should be taken from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weaknesses. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, plural, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Now, that's, that's an incredible statement. I mean, come on. Come on. I, I, I am amazed when I read this. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. I will boast all the more gladly of my singleness, even though I want to be married. I will boast all the more gladly about my childlessness, even though I want to have a child. I will boast all the more gladly about my sickness, even though I want to be healed. I'll boast all the more gladly about, about the brokenness in my life, even though I'm pleading for God to heal that brokenness, so that the power of Christ may rest Upon me. Then, for the sake of Christ, I am content with weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And you go, come on. How do you get, how do you get here? How, how do you live here? How, how do you get to this zip code? How do you get to a place of saying, we have this treasure in jars of clay? Just to show that the all-surpassing power is not from ourselves, but it's from the Lord. And so as I read this and ponder this, I've asked, how, how do we get there? This is not stoic indifference and heroic self-restraint. This is a, a trusting in the Lord. It, it's not just barely surviving. Listen to chapter 2, verse 14. He says this, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. This is the life of trust, the life of looking unto the Lord. Well, I think of Philippians 4 where Paul is in a Roman prison and he says this, verse 11. He says, not that I am speaking 
of being in need. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. How do you get there, Paul? How do you get there? And so I want to look at this text that does not say it's all about achieving karma in this life so in the next life you'll come back at a higher life form. No, the Bible says you die once and then you're judged. I want to look at this text today and, and see how, how, how in some ways does the Apostle Paul get to this place because this is an amazing place to be. This is an amazing place to be. I, I boast in my weaknesses. I boast in my frailty. So the power of God may be manifest through me. I boast in my sicknesses. I say, Lord, take it away from me. But he says, no, so I'm going to boast in it. And so he starts off by saying, chapter 4, verse 13, since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written. Psalm 116, I believed and so I spoke. So we believe and we speak, we preach the gospel. Verse 14, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. He's talking about the resurrection of the body. Now, when I, I had wonderful parents growing up. They're still alive. And my mom and dad sometimes would ask me to do something, and being an inquisitive kid, I would say, why? And they would often say what? Because I said so. And I remember as a child thinking, I, I won't do that to my kids. And now we've raised two wonderful children, and, and there were many times they would say to me, why? And I would say, because I said so. And, uh, you know, those of you that are not parents yet, and you want to be, or you just have young children, you think, well, when my kids grow up, I will never say because I said so. I will give them a clear, rational basis put on your shoes. Why? We're going to walk down a street with this broken glass, and you could get a staph infection with a cut, and it could develop gangrene. We have to cut off your right leg, so put on your shoes. You know, you, you, just, you just sometimes, they, the kids just wear you down. You say, because I said so. I was, I was thinking about that this week. I was looking at this text, and I thought, you know, what's interesting? Abba Father never says, do this because I say so. The whole Bible is just filled with promises and reasons and, uh, and for, for doing what God tells us to do. And it's, he, say, he says here, you know, Paul says, I believe, therefore I speak. I speak with bravery. I, I don't throw in the towel because, verse 14, he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. This concept is spoken of, for example, in Romans chapter 8. Uh, Romans 8, verse 28. And we know that all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord, who are called according to His purpose, period. But then he doesn't stop there. He unfolds one of the most grand and glorious passages in all the Bible. Listen. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that Christ might be the firstborn among many brothers. Not only does He love you with an everlasting love, but He works in your heart in such a way that you become like Christ. 
And then he keeps on going. He says, and those whom he predestined loved eternally, he also called. He just doesn't love us with an everlasting love, but he sends people to call us to himself through the gospel of grace. He calls us to himself. And those whom he called, he also justified or declares righteous in God's sight. And a subset of justification is he not only declares us righteous, but he brings us unto his bosom and he adopts us as his sons and his daughters. And no one can snatch us from the Father's embrace. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And and that's the concept here in verse 14, glorified. Glorification is, is the work of God. The systematic theology quote here, glorification is the final step in the application of redemption. It will happen when Christ returns and raises from the dead the bodies of all believers for all time who have died and reunites them with their souls and changes them, their bodies of all believers who remain alive, thereby giving all believers at the same time perfect resurrection bodies like his own. Westminster Confession says this, where they shall be fully and forever freed from all sin and misery and filled with inconceivable joys, made perfectly holy and happy both in body and in soul. Glorification. Now let me read you a few verses. This is, you got to think, I want you to think well today. I want you to really think through this. Glorification. Very, very quickly. When you die before Jesus comes, your body stays where it is. Your soul goes to be with the Lord, or your soul goes to judgment. But there's a great day of judgment when Jesus will come again, and the dead in Christ will rise, and we'll meet him in the air, and we'll receive resurrection bodies. It's, it's wild, but you've got to think about this. See, one reason Paul is pressing on is he really dealt with this truth of the glorification of the believer, being raised with Christ and presented in his presence forever. And that, that compels them. Just let me just read a few verses. Romans chapter 5, verse 2, says this. Through him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. To, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Hear that? The hope of glory. Hope of being with the Lord forever. Then chapter 3, verse 4, Colossians says this. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory, in eternity. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God. Just the glory that's going to be revealed. 2 Timothy 2, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen that they may obtain salvation and with it eternal glory. Glory. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, if you go to a funeral of a believer, you're going to hear this passage read time after time. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 13, we do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve like the others who have no hope. 
like the Stoics or the Epicureans who say once you die, that's just it. There's no hope. And Paul keeps on saying, we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so. Through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have died or fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a loud cry, a cry of command, and with the voice of an archangel, and the trumpet sound of the Lord will go forth, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive will be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and we will be with him forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Encourage each other. Stay strong. Eternity awaits. Stay strong. It's not about death. It's not about fulfilling your karma. It's not about being indifferent and stoical. It's about the glory that is coming. And then he says, in 1 Corinthians 15, the apostle says, about our bodies. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown perishable, as us, is raised imperishable. What is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. What is sown in weakness is raised in power. What is sown in natural body is raised a spiritual body. Now, you read the Gospels, you get to, like, on the road to Emmaus. Jesus, the resurrected Christ, is walking with these men and he unfolds the word of God to them and shows them that all the promises are fulfilled in the Messiah and it says their eyes were opened, okay? But then in the book of John, Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb and they, she says to someone that she thought was the gardener, where have you laid the Lord? Where have you taken his body? And when he spoke to her, she said, is it you, Lord, basically? Because Christ had a resurrection body. He, they didn't recognize him. Even though he died at age 32 or 33, he'd been a hard life. Scars and wounds and just the atrophy of the body. The only thing he retained of his natural body were the nail prints and the side sword print. It was a glorious, raised, and imperishable body. And he says, encourage each other with these words. Do, do, do you have that hope? I mean, depends on who you read. The, the, the apogee of our physical development is anywhere from 19 to 22. Many of us have long gone that era. That's kind of sort of like dimly resurrection bodies. People that are in shape and they're, listen. Adam and Eve, before sin, were studs. They made Brad and Angelina look like ugly people. But think about, think about it. No sin, no decay, no cellulite, no broken down, no Achilles tendons that hurt you all the time when you get up in the middle of the night. No, no disease. They were beautiful. We were one to have a resurrection body. And Paul says because of that, you know, because of the hope of the resurrection and being with the Lord forever, we press on. I want you to see that. Secondly, says this, verse 15 says, my life is not in vain. He says, 
For it is all for your sake, so that the grace that extends to more and more people may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So I'm living this way, I'm preaching it out, because I realize that the grace of God is extending to more and more people, and it will increase in thanksgiving to the glory of God. What he's saying is, my life is never lived in vain if I live it as unto the Lord. You count. What you do counts. There should never be the death of hope in any Christian heart. There should never be the death of hope in any Christian marriage or parenting or relationship because we are people whose lives are not lived in vain. There's never the death of hope. I was thinking about this and I thought about a poem from years ago entitled Richard Corey by E.A. Robinson. Listen to this short poem. Whenever Richard Corey went downtown, we people on the pavement looked at him. He was a gentleman from soul to crown, clean-favored and imperially slim. And he was always quietly arrayed, and he was always human when he talked. But still he fluttered pulses when he said, good morning. And he glittered when he walked. And he was rich. Yes, richer than a king. And admirably schooled in every grace. And fine we thought that he was everything to make us wish that we were in his place. So on we worked and waited for the light and went without the meat and cursed the bread. And Richard Corey, one calm summer night, went home and put a bullet through his head. The death of hope. The writer says Richard Corey was everything we wanted to be, but there was the death of hope. Conversely, listen, we never give in to despair. Never. We get up every day and we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And as Jesus followers, we mean, Lord, we want to submit more and more to your word by your Holy Spirit, to the glory of your name. We want to see your church grow and increase, and we want to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ and every obstacle that raises itself up against the lordship of Christ and the beauty of the gospel. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. I was thinking about this in some of my favorite people in history. I thought about William Carey, the father of modern-day missions who is the toast of any school of missions and went to India in 1796 and died there in 1834 and translated the Bible into seven known languages and 13 dialects. I thought about him being in England and he was an apprentice cobbler making shoes and there was a young man there who was an apprentice cobbler a little bit older and they started becoming friends and this young man named Peter War kept saying to Carrie, have you considered Christ? Will you go to church with me this week? Have you considered Christ? Just, just as, as a friend. And Carrie goes to church. He hears the gospel. Over several weeks, he's converted. Uh, he, he eventually becomes a pastor and a missionary. And I thought, you know, when Peter War was sitting there putting together some shoes, he didn't look across the way and say, oh, there's just a the guy that's going to be the father of modern-day missions. There's just a the guy that's going to translate the Bible into eight languages where there's no Bible right now and 13 dialects. There's a the guy that's going to be the father of modern-day missions. I'm going to share Christ with him. No. He just is being obedient to the everyday things of life. He says, my life is not in vain. Or I, I thought about uh, somebody they called the Frenchman who was trained to be an attorney in the 16th century and came from a 
great educational background, a brilliant man, but, but very temperamental and somewhat caustic at times. And how he heard the gospel and he left law and he became a Bible teacher and he was hounded because of his beliefs. And there's a young guy named Nicholas Kopp who befriended him and just loved him and cared for him and walked with him and opened the Bible and taught him. And another, another man named Martin Bucer, who some of you have heard of, one of the reformers who, who, who encouraged him to be more pastoral and not so brittle, prickly. They just loved this guy. Many of us have never heard of Martin Bucer. Very few have heard of Nicholas Kopp. But they, everybody's heard of the person they mentored and loved. His name is John Calvin. Maybe the greatest theologian this side of Augustine and the church. Or last week I mentioned a guy named Alexander Solzhenitsyn who was in a gulag and he had cancer and they thought he was going to die. And he went to see a doctor in the gulag, a physician who was also a Baptist who knew Christ. And Solzhenitsyn befriended him and they talked, this doctor shared Christ with Solzhenitsyn, talked about the gospel of grace and Solzhenitsyn started listening and they had a very intense discussion where Solzhenitsyn said, my eyes were, were opened and that night some people broke into the pharmacy, broke into the hospital and killed the doctor trying to steal some drugs. And I, I don't think this doctor looked at Solzhenitsyn and said, here's a man with cancer who's probably going to die in a few months. But no, he'll, he'll live and he will be such a literary force that he'll win the Nobel Prize for Literature and he'll be one of the chief reasons that this empire, who is, which is evil and is falsely imprisoned me, will, will topple and fall in 1989. I'm going to share Christ with him. No, he just was faithful. Listen, what you do is not in vain. And if you ever think it is, just say, that is from the pit of hell. It smells like smoke and it stinks. Be faithful. Paul says we believe and we speak because of the resurrection of the body with the Lord forever. And we know that this grace is going out and it will change hearts and lives. Just speak it. Live it. Pray it. And thirdly, he kind of comes full circle and he says, so we do not lose heart. He says, even though the outward man is wasting away, the inner man is being renewed day by day. We don't, we don't lose heart. Though our outward self is, is, is wasting away. I remember memorizing this verse several years ago and thinking through it again. And wasting away is such a strong word. And I thought, surely, in the Greek, it, it, there's, a, there's a better word to use. The translators here just were having a bad hair day. Because that, that you know, really, wasting away? Come on, can we get a little bit more... Kind to old folks. You know what it means? It means decaying. Decaying. We're wasting away. We're, we're wasting away. So, so when, I, when I turned 40, I remember people say, hey, you're, you're, man, you're 40. And I'd say, hey, man, there's a guy playing for the Boston Celtics named Robert Parrish who's a year older than me. I can still take you guys in the paint. I, I, I can bring it. So I turned 60 this week. My friend texted me and said, you know, I can't believe you're 60. I said, I'm still 60, but I can outspin you. I take spin classes now because I can't run. My kid is 10 and her. I, I can't run, so I, I take spin classes with a bunch of other 
middle-aged men and women. So now I'm saying, I can outspin you. I thought, well, I'm going to say age 80. Well, at 80 I may be 80, but I can beat you in shuffleboard, you know. <laughs> I can take you in checkers, you know, that type of thing. It's true. We are wasting away. I read this, just this headline article in a magazine. I didn't even read the article. It says, does CrossFit work? CrossFit is a workout regimen that some of you do. And Hey, I look at you guys, and it works for a little while. Not forever. Because we're wasting away. Now, I didn't tell the last group this, but just those of you who are young, listen to you in the gym, listen especially. When you see an older person, and they say they had a birthday, and they tell you their age. Do not say this. You look great for a 60-year-old. Don't, don't throw in the qualifying phrase. Just say, you look great, and let us all be happy and walk away lying to each other. You know? <laughs> Just be kind. You see, old age, here's my, my definition of old age. It's my definition. Old age is the time... When hair grows where it should not, and it does not grow where it should. <laughs> I remember several years ago, I was getting my hair cut by a wonderful young woman in our church. And she was finished, and I started to get up, and she gently put her hand on my shoulders and said, No, just sit back down for a minute. Then she got those electric clippers and started cutting the hair in my ears. And I went, Don't do that. That's the point of no return, you know? Old age is when hair grows where it should not and does not grow where it should. It's, it's, just, it's, just, it's just hard. Two weeks ago, we were in West Virginia, New River Gorge, a little town called Fayetteville. And it's just, just think about your body. And so we passed this beautiful little restaurant called Biscuit World. Does that sound good or what? It just, and, and so we were out one night trying to find a grocery store to buy very healthy food at, and so I stopped at Biscuit World to ask for directions, and I went inside, and the aroma just engulfed me, and I asked the very kind young lady, I said, can you tell me the nearest grocery store thing where we can buy bran and prunes and vegetables, and, and she said, down here, I just, I just lingered there in Biscuit World. And I got back in the car and I told my wife, this, I said, you'll never see this sign, Cauliflower World. <laughs> oh, who are we going to eat tonight? Cauliflower World. Brussels sprout world. You know, listen, no joking aside, a great day is coming when Biscuit World won't hurt you. Where cauliflower will taste good. And Brussels sprouts and cucumbers and all those fruit made after the fall will taste good. See? <laughs> See, so he says, he says though the outer man is wasting, he says, but the inner man is being renewed. It's being renewed day by day. Now, as I read this, I think, do the great themes of this symphonic apostolic literature run through my heart? Resurrection bodies forever with the Lord. Life not in vain. Yes, the outer man is perishing, but the inner man is being renewed. Do, do these themes run through my heart? There's a book on the Puritans. I love the Puritans by J.I. Packer, Puritans 1560 to 1660. Let me just read one paragraph. 
And he says this, he says, regarding these men who lived in England and America, he said, in them, clear-headed, clear-headed passion and warm-hearted compassion combined, visionary and practical, idealistic and realistic too, goal-oriented and methodical. They were great believers, great hopers, great doers, great sufferers. By their sufferings both on both sides of the Atlantic, it seasoned them and ripened them till they gained a stature that was nothing short of heroic. He says this, the Puritans lost more or less every public battle they fought. Those who stayed in England did not change the Church of England as they hoped to do, nor did they revive more than the minority of its adherents. And eventually they were driven out of Anglicanism by calculated pressure on their consciences. Those across the Atlantic and came to America failed to establish the New Jerusalem in New England. For the first 50 years of their little colonies, it barely survived. They hung on by the skin of their teeth, but the moral and spiritual victories that the Puritans won by keeping sweet, peaceful, patient, obedient, and hopeful under sustained and seeming intolerable pressure and frustrations gave them a place of high honor in the Believer's Hall of Fame. They trusted God. Listen, they thought deeply. They were theologically sound. And these themes ran through their heart. And it seized their vision. It seized their minds. And may God do the same with us. Uh, there's been a lot of articles this week about, about this situation. Background very quickly. Uh, the chief Nazi art collector raided homes and museums and stored art for Nazi Germany. And they thought that this huge collection of art was destroyed when the Allies bombed Dresden in World War II. And the man who was the chief collector was, was died in 1956 in a car crash, and his son is now 80 years of age. His son has a very modest apartment in, in, in Munich. And because of uh, some information, the German authorities suspected that maybe this man who is the child of this art collector for the Nazis may, may have some art. And so they went into his very modest apartment in Munich and a very lower middle class of, of Munich went in there. And inside one whole room, this is what they found. They found 121 framed pieces of art by people like Cezanne and Van Gogh. Then they found 1,285 unframed pieces of art worth $1.35 billion. Billion. And, and he's sitting there living in Munich, doesn't travel with all this art. Now, I, I don't know much about the black market, so just you should be happy about that. But I would think you could slip a little Van Gogh in your briefcase and travel somewhere and meet an underground art person. He says, this Van Gogh is worth $15 million, but you can have it for $7.8. It's a deal. It's a blue light special right here for you. And he'll pay you, man. He'll pay you. Just put it in a bank account in Barbados or the First National Bank of Walterboro, anywhere. And then I would slip, listen, I would slip out. and I, I wouldn't live in Munich maybe a few months out of the year, but I would have five homes all over the world. I'd have my private jet. I'd have box seats at the Cowboy Games. I wouldn't be sitting in an apartment with $1.35 billion of art in the next room eating sardines and crackers. You know what I mean? I do that frequently as a believer. 
I don't draw on the riches of Christ. I don't sit back and think seriously. One day, resurrection bodies with the Lord forever, presented into His presence by the grace of Jesus. People without Him do not have that hope. I do not sit back and say that the little I do in the name of Jesus, a, a letter, an email, a Bible study taught, will be used of God significantly. I'm just called to be obedient. I do not sit back and say, you know, let's be bluntly honest, the outward man is wasting away. But the inner man is being renewed by the power of the Spirit for the glory of God. And I keep on pressing. That's what Paul did. I want to be like that. Let's pray. Lord, this is uh, the Word of God, and we pray that by your Holy Spirit you make application to our lives, to the glory of your name. I, I pray, Lord, that we would not be despairing, but that we would say, blessed be the name of the Lord. He uses my life. He uses the little I do. I pray that we would think frequently about the glory of heaven. Lord, I, I pray that we would say with all honesty, no matter how many classes we take and what kind of diet regimen we face, that the outward man eventually is going to waste away. But thanks be to God, the inner man is being renewed day by day. So renew us, refresh us, use us. Let us think deeply. Let's be good theologians, good Bible students. And may that change our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.